Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Athletic. Europe beware. The spectacular is almost becoming the norm from Napoli. Now in 2022-23, played 35-129, drawn two, lost only four. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me in the studio, Michael Cox and Liam Tharm. And joining us virtually from sunny Cairo, Ahmed Walid's here. Hello, Ahmed. Hi, Ali. How are you? Hi, guys. Nice to be back. It's great to have you on. Uh, not that we only get you on for the big occasions, but I must admit, when I think about you and your work for the Athletic, your tactical breakdowns of games, I'm always looking forward to March, April and May, the big games, particularly in the Champions League. So I hope you're in good form heading into the next few weeks. Yeah, great. And enjoyed Michael's usual analysis and Liam's analysis uh, on the City game. Yeah, spot on. Uh, it's a good time to be setting aside time to read uh, all of the analysis and more on the Athletic site. Uh, Michael, in fact, your latest article, uh, not so much tactical analysis as almost uh, semantic and linguistic analysis uh, and an article that I, I like to think would be right in the middle of your dream Venn diagram in that it is both causing a busy and broadly positive comment section, which is good to please the bosses, uh, but has also been described in the comments as fantastically geeky. Yeah, it's an article about uh, foreign club names and why we feel the need to add on the name of the city or town afterwards. So, for example, Sporting Lisbon, Athletic Bilbao, uh, people who support those clubs uh, don't like the fact we do that, basically. And, uh, yeah, it's a look at that. I'd say broadly a justification or trying to be a justification of why we do that. But there's also some very um, anomalous situations as well, which I really enjoyed going through so for example az or rz yeah in the netherlands the a stands for alkmaar right we call them az alkmaar <laughs> so we're saying that twice um there's a good one with aik in uh, in sweden who are referred to as both in this country sometimes as aik solna which is technically the city they're from mm -hmm. but that's quite near stockholm so they're sometimes called aik stockholm it took me a few years to realize they were not different clubs right. they're just the same club that is called neither of those things. Um, and you, you're interested in the Bayern Munich situation I as well. I am rattled. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> rattled. I mean, firstly, th I mean, this article could not be more up my street in terms of being relevant to all of my interests. And I would have thought that at least a lot of the stuff that you spoke about were things that I would have thought about before. And, and I would hope that I would know most of the rules and, and most of the right names to call various clubs across Europe. What I did not know at all and I still, as I'm saying it, am worried that this is a huge stitch-up. <laughs> is that the word for Munich in Italian is Monaco. Yeah. <laughs> so in Italy, in Italian publications, they sometimes will write Bayern Monaco. Yeah. I mean, all the time. If you, I've seen it on um, kind of arrivals, you know, airports as well, you know, when you're looking for your baggage and it's in... 
They're Monaco, and that's uh, that's their word for Munich. Well, every day's a school day, uh, reading Michael on The Athletic. Um, look, guys, I reckon I've had double-figure conversations since last week with people that listened to our double header on the state of football management. Some really interesting responses and, and thoughts, Liam. It, it was... Uh, yeah, it was a it was an interesting exercise. I'm not sure I've necessarily left it with more answers than questions, though. That might be a good thing. Um, I think it feeds on quite nicely today um, in terms of one of the teams we're looking at in particular with with Napoli. That um, ironically, there's maybe a, a coach there, head coach that isn't talked about too much with a team being outstandingly successful. I think we're very quick on on the English side of the game that you know we very very early on would attribute a manager to the team's success and almost make them inseparable and that any team can then go and, you know, pluck that manager and get that same success. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's cool and, and different, I think, as well uh, for managerial success in, in knockout football, um, even more about not losing than it is um, instantly sort of winning. Luciano Spalletti's Napoli, Michael, are romping to the Serie A title and it will be their first since 1989-1990. It feels both like a really significant and exciting historical title and also purely just looking from a seasonal basis, an incredible season-long performance and improvement even from last season. Yeah, it feels quite weird to be watching this happening in real time, doesn't it? Napoli winning Serie A, like you say, hasn't happened certainly in the period where I've been aware of football. And so we've only really seen it happen, you know, a lot of us in kind of documentaries and even on a wider level. I mean, it's over 20 years now since the Serie A title was won by a side that wasn't Milan, Juve or Inter. And when you look at the stats overall, you know, since Serie A was formed, they completely dominate the uh, the title winning list. I mean, you know, next on the list after those three clubs is Genoa, who haven't won it since 1924. And then Torino, who haven't won it since 1976. And Bologna, who haven't won it since 1964. So it's actually pretty rare you get a side outside the big three which we don't ever really refer to them as the big three but historically they are the big three so yeah just watching you know a great footballing city like naples almost already celebrating a title win is pretty spectacular yeah they've got good reason to i was looking at some of the models that um sort of forecast and predict how the season might end um they're the best team across europe's top five major leagues this season for points and points per game so they're even better than than barca psg the, the other teams in other leagues that are sort of um runaway title leaders and of course are, are cantering through um the champions league at, at this point in time and the models say that they're going to probably come somewhere in the low to mid 90s which is among some of the best seasons in, in sort of recent um, history. Inter had 91 points in, in 2020-21. Juve had 90 a few seasons back, 95-91 totals. Um, they could go some way to push that 102-point season from Juve in 2013-14. Uh, the, the points are similar. After 26 games, Juve were on 69 points, Napoli on 68. Uh, Juve had 62 goals scored, Napoli were on 60. Um, but have a marginally better defence in terms of fewer goals conceded and a slightly better goal difference. So I think from a tactical perspective, they're showing great adaptability and we'll come on to that but yeah even nice to see Pep give them recognition in the week to, to say you know the, the best team I think either said in Europe or the world but really really cool um, and a team that I think really have, have gone under the radar at least from the English side of things this season just because Arsenal have sort of come on in such leaps and bounds I guess this is a comparable um, you know growth of a team from a similar position um, with sort of big big league history but um, yeah absolutely fantastic and uh, a really unique style too. Yeah, and I think the closest they have come was the 17-18 season under Maurizio Sarri. So I think there were five games to go and it was a four points difference. Um, 
Saris uh, Napoli side needed to travel to Turin to face Juventus and they won at the Allianz Stadium with a 90th minute header from a corner from Khalidou Koulibaly. Then it was a one-point race, there were four games to go, but weirdly, uh, Napoli lost like the next game away to Fiorentina, if I remember correctly. That's the closest they've been uh, to a title since they came up in uh, again in 2007. And Michael, because of the as you alluded to, almost like mythical status of, of Napoli, not just within the English game, but I think any uh, observers of, of European football from across the world will have a certain image of, of Napoli. And as you say, much of it just built on documentaries, you know, both fact and, and sometimes somewhat apocryphal, I dare say, and, and almost mythological. It feels to me like this is too easy. This doesn't fit what should happen. If Napoli have to win a title for the first time in over 30 years, I feel like it should come with with more of a battle. Yeah, I thought the only reason they maybe wouldn't win the league would be kind of bottle. I mean, they've historically they've won the the title twice. They've come runners up eight times. And I thought it was a little bit like Liverpool a few years ago, you know, going into the final stages of 2014. I think maybe they did get carried away by the emotional side of things and obviously fell short that year. And then when they did win it in 2020, it was the same situation as this. They were 20 points clear or whatever, and that just wasn't a factor. So, yeah, it, it does feel like, uh, you know, obviously you want to be winning by the league by a long way if you can, but it feels like of all clubs, I think Napoli have done well that this first one, if you like, first one in this era is going to be done relatively comfortably. Sometimes a title race needs a dance partner, Liam. It doesn't feel like they've got that in the other clubs in Serie A who, who would have been targeting a title this season. It feels like a, a poor renewal on that front. Yeah, Juve, their point deduction, and that's meant they've massively fallen off of a cliff. Um, but in terms of the other challenges around them, um, Inter have had some very, very patchy form, lost quite a few games. Milan had a really bad spell at the start of the year post-World Cup, uh, have come back into form, uh, purely made some sort of tactical switches. And of course, they're also now through to the knockout stages. So you've got some teams that are improving, but just not consistently enough really over um, you know, the 38 games. But this could end up being a record-breaking season for Napoli. Um, so I think they could do this again and have a real good chance You know, at another Scudetto. So it's definitely very much good enough. They're not just reliant on other teams being bad. I think there's a game early on in the season where I felt like maybe they could do something because in that game, they didn't play really well at all. It was the Milan game at San Siro. And back then, Milan were very close and had a good start to the season. And actually, Napoli didn't play that well, but Merit, huge saves. And Kim was great that game. So I think there's also the factor of them winning in some games where they don't need to have all this shiny performance it doesn't come a lot but it was needed back in September when Milan were close I'm saying this now idea for a future episode I want this on record the concept of winning when playing badly that's a good show we have to do that at some point That is a very, very fascinating topic um, and uh, and something that Ahmed's raised there. Uh, let's talk about their tactical setup. This is the Tactics podcast after all. So instead of myths and legends and, and setting aside all the excitement, uh, Michael, h- how would you start to describe their tactical setup to someone who hasn't watched much Napoli this season? Uh, if I haven't watched them, I'd say broadly a 4-3-3. I think they play pretty wide. The wingers stretch the play, hug the touchlines a little bit. I would say the number eights are broadly attack-minded. Not quite free eights, but free-ish eights, I think is fair to say. Uh, holding midfielder Lobotka drops into defence a lot, particularly when they're playing out against two strikers or two attackers. And the fullbacks push forward, but in a kind of um, slightly restricted way, tend to take it in turns, and the other one often tucks inside to form a back three. So 
Yeah, I would say a fairly classic 4-3-3. There's a quote from Spalletti that is fascinating to me and how much of it is entirely true and the way that Napoli play might be slightly different. But I think this was after the, the Ajax game this season in the group stages um, and he said, systems no longer exist in football. It's all about the spaces left by the opposition. You must be quick to spot them and know the right moment to strike, have the courage to start the move even when pressed. And obviously this has been translated, I assume, so there might be some stuff lost in there. But yeah. um, there's a real degree of fluidity and adaptability to, to how they play. Um, it doesn't feel like there's a huge ton of, um, you know, structured... Um, organized like repeated sort of build-up patterns um often the midfielders will rotate at times someone might drop in someone else will go beyond as michael said the the fullbacks um are sort of doing things interchangeably at times the wingers might roll inside they've got the real benefit of having who i think is one of the best 1v2 strikers in the world in, in awesome and up top that if they need to when their midfielders get marked they can go long they can play long into him he can play flick on so he can chest control it he can run in behind he can sort of do all of it he's probably quite a similar profile to to Haaland but even better in build up I'd argue um, and they've started to play some really nice stuff in wide areas they've got full backs that can under nap and overlap they play nice patterns I think a great case study for their adaptability was in the first leg against Frankfurt where the first 15 minutes they had a lot of possession struggled to break down a really good really organised sort of 5-4-1 mid block um, and then started to exploit them more in transition um, you know they find ways to to beat different types of opposition um, because they're not stuck to playing a certain way they weren't one of the top possession sides um, in the Champions League group stages and um, they seem really okay with that like that doesn't seem to be a problem at all That's interesting so Michael not necessarily a team that is completely gung-ho all-out attack but maybe I'm getting a picture of a team that are very good at improvising and problem solving within a general structure we've often talked about teams Tottenham spring to mind this season who have such rigid patterns of play that the issue comes when that's not working necessarily and, and they perhaps struggle to improvise they don't they don't they, they can't perform outside of a certain structure is is that a clear strength of, of Napoli more so than like this is how they attack every time and it works every time yeah I think that's probably a good way of framing the contrast to to kind of underline what Liam means or what Spalletti means really about the team I mean I'm slightly cautious with his kind of there's no such thing as a system thing. I think managers have always kind of said that. And like I said, I would define this as a, a very clear 4-3-3. I think there's a lot of familiar concepts. It's not like he's ripping up the rule book and, you know, this isn't total football 2.0. In in some ways, it's it's quite structured, I think, in, in other ways the players have freedom. But yeah, there is a kind of, um, it's quite a kind of joyous team to watch. You do get the sense these are just players at times having fun and improvising and, and not just relying on set patterns. They've had 17 different goal scorers in all competitions this season and only two of them have scored 10 plus. This is a team that I think scored 20 goals in the Champions League group stages uh, and Osimhen, I think through limited minutes from injury, scored once. Um, just the sheer variety in the goals that they score. Some have set pieces, some have counter-attacks. You've still got headed goals of crosses like we saw last night uh, against Frankfurt. There's there's not like a goal that's missing really from, um, you know, either from players or from their entire team in terms of a collection. And yeah, that was the funny thing about the Champions League group stage performance because they've got a relatively set 11 in the league. But you look at Raspadori, he's only started seven times in Serie A this season, scored one goal, so not really a big player in league competition. But he's got four goals from three starts in the Champions League. And the same with Giovanni Simeone, who hasn't started a single Serie A game all year. He's just a super sub. But he's played a bit more in the Champions League and got four goals. So it's a nice blend of having a, a regular starting eleven, but also having players who come into the side and just suddenly make an impact. 
And Michael, based on when we've spoken about Spalletti before, it, it doesn't seem a surprise that the position in which he's mixing and matching to great effect is up front because this is someone who has always had quite a f fluid, if you like, relationship with a number nine. Yeah, I suppose he, he became most... Um you know, well-known on the international stage with his Roma side that played really without a proper striker in about 2007, which was really a kind of um, circumstantial thing. And he played Totti there and Totti was coming deep and it worked really well. And that, you know, it seems to happen quite a lot with managers. They kind of stumble upon something, it becomes their identity. So he went to uh, Zenit, who are not Zenit St. Petersburg, as people <laughs> who read today's article will be aware, um, and did a similar thing with um, Alexander Kurzhikov who became a bit of a kind of laughing stock at Euro 2012 just because he kept on not scoring goals. But his his link player as a striker was absolutely fantastic. He peeled off to the left a lot. So yeah, it, it has become his thing. I mean, he's obviously playing with a bit more of a classic striker at the moment. But yeah, there's there's great fluidity in the way they play. And that's something that uh, Cavara spoke about uh, in an article that came out this week, um, saying how much he loves the freedom and he needs that to play with. And I know he's really been sort of penned up as their um, poster boy and, uh, you know, the real sort of icon of this side. But he doesn't always score goals that you'd associate with a sort of typical inverted winger. He's not always dribbling inside and um, they're just firing into the top corner from range. He's, you know, he's attacking crosses. He's playing one-two combinations. Um, there's a good mix of runs in behind as well for sort of passes in behind. So there's, you know, even on the individual level, there's a lot of variety um, to the game. And I'm sure we'll touch on it later, but I think it's particularly impressive when you look at how recently they've brought in these players and from different parts of Europe. This is a team that has gelled together really quickly and, you know, in a really accelerated sense and straight away gone and performed um, on, on the biggest stage and, you know, is repeatedly passing tests and solving problems against different types of opposition and look really, really good at seeing out wins as well when they go in front. They are very good at scoring a second or third goal and when they need to, they can sit back and, you know, defend crosses expertly well. We'll get eight, nine players in the box, can defend in a 4-5-1 mid-block when they need to. Um, there's no, like, real significant weakness, which I think is a major positive in, in a knockout competition. Yeah, and I want to add something Michael said two or three minutes ago about the number eight. Like, it's it's normal that uh, you can see Anguissa and Zelensky on, on the same side. It, it's completely normal. And this fluid passing combination between them with Lobotka as well. So the fluidity and chemistry in terms of the passing helps. And it also helps the wide rotations. You can see Mario Rui, Kvaratskhelia and Zelensky all rotating or on the other side. It's less on the other side with Anguissa, De Lorenzo and Politano. But yeah, these rotations and passing combinations are great. Interesting that you talk about number eights, combining and wide rotations. Pep Guardiola said, Napoli are maybe the best team in Europe this year in terms of playing style, close to Arsenal. Discuss. Well, I don't know what he meant by that. Does he mean close to Arsenal in terms of ability and level they're playing at or close to Arsenal in terms of style? I, I don't know. I suppose also an element of caution based on his other post-match comments that night. Um, <laughs> supposedly after a, a glass or two of wine, but um, <laughs> I, I, assume, I assume that's a compliment. Um, I guess we were saying, you know, another similar 4-3-3 with, you know, on a reductionist level, inverted wingers that like to dribble. They're one of the top two teams, I think, in uh, the Champions League for dribbles and dribbles ending in shots. So it's a team with a lot of individuality, um, but also a lot of established, good, effective playing relationships. And, and as I said, can attack asymmetrically. So they might attack differently down different sides. They'll sort of play short to either Politano when he drops deep or to right back um, Di Lorenzo. This was in the build-up to the penalty they won at Frankfurt um, that, that Carrara missed was sort of playing that short pass to the fullback. And normally they get sort of boxed in, but they'll play a left-footed pass straight away in behind or a, a quick whipped one um, into Osimhen. So there's, there's different ways, there's different um, sort of pieces to the puzzle, if you will, um, in terms of an attack style.
And something I learned in the past two, three years is never to take Guardiola's words serious, 100% seriously. <laughs> Always with a pinch of salt, regardless if he's praising, if he's discussing tactics or anything. I'm going to tell you something. I have three idols in my life. Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, and Julia Roberts. Okay? This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One of the things I like about Napoli is I think there's elements of two of the most interesting sides in European competition in recent years. Uh, firstly, Atalanta, the way that they rotate positions down the flanks is really interesting. I read a very good article on Medium by someone called Christoph the Tactician, who's done a really in-depth breakdown of uh, of Napoli's playing style. And he makes the point that they rotate in a triangle down one flank and in more of a diamond down the other flank, which is really difficult to explain in podcast terms. So I'm not going to, but I'd recommend that article. Christoph, the tactician, his name is. Um, and there's also elements of um, Ajax, I think, in the way that um, under Ten Hag, when they nearly got to the Champions League final, they were fascinating with how the wingers would kind of cross from one side to the other to combine. So you'd have two wingers down the same flank. And I think Napoli do that with their number eights. I think they often end up in the channel together combining, as, as Ahmed said. So that's interesting. They also switch play very well. I mean, the defining game of this season is the 5-1 win over Juventus. And I think four of the goals, maybe, four of the five goals came from just constantly switching the play from one side to the other um, on the outside of a really quite narrow kind of 5-3-2 from Juventus. They just couldn't cope with that. So they're very interesting. And I also think it's interesting that they are... They're quite forward thinking and we're talking about them in, in slightly kind of almost futuristic terms. I think it's worth pointing out that Spalletti's 64. He's quite old for a coach. You know, that's older than every coach in the Premier League. David Moyes is the oldest at 59. I mean, he's 24 years older than Arteta. And the only other uh, managers at the moment in their mid-60s are Gasparini, who kind of just mentioned in relation to Atalanta, and Maurizio Sarri. And I'd say they've been maybe the two most interesting Italian coaches in recent years. I know Liam will bring up De Zerbi as well. Uh, <laughs> My lips are sealed. But uh, yeah, it goes to show that innovation is not just about these up-and-coming managers. It's, it's guys in their 60s doing really interesting things. Yeah, always bringing up De Zerbi for coming over to the Premier League and uh, improving Brighton from a, already a pretty high performance level and doing so in a, quite an interesting and, and, and fairly forward-thinking tactical style that not a lot of teams with their you know, Wage Bill would have done before in the Premier League. I wish you'd stop doing that, Liam, particularly on the Tactics podcast. Uh, does Spalletti deserve more credit? I mean, maybe the answer lies in his age and perceptions of 64-year-old managers not being particularly sexy in terms of uh, of appointments long-term, but... <laughs> maybe not to you. <laughs> we haven't seen him linked with any clubs. Should we expect that to have happened? Teams should be all over a manager like this, surely. Yeah, I, I see how other managers 
get more marketable. Some of them that I know grew up playing football manager and don't quite yeah, their pro license are probably more tweetable than um you know, someone like Spletty. But from what I see now in terms of how well they've brought in players that for all intents and purposes were not at this level at other clubs, either they were, you know, younger in their career or um Anguisa someone that many Premier League fans will remember not being exceptionally good at Fulham. He's made a team that's so well adaptable and never looked like they're really panicking in games. I'd I'd look at their sort of goal splits um according to 15-minute periods in the game, so chunking up each half into sort of three chunks, um, if you will. They've scored six goals in the first 15 minutes, which isn't, you know, really among the top teams in the league. Scored nine uh, between the 16th and 30th minute, uh, and then 13 uh, in the 31st of the 45th minute. So they're progressively scoring more throughout the first half, and it's the same pattern in the second half. Eight goals uh, in the first 15 minutes of the second half, then 10, and then 14. So clearly there, I think they're adjusting really well when they solve the team's sort of tactical plan. Um, definitely the case uh, last night again in the second leg against Frankfurt, where you know, they almost got carved apart a couple of times early on with quite a high line, these fullbacks that were being really aggressive in the press. Um, and then Spetty obviously makes his tweaks. And, um, you know, I, I see a lot of predictive value in that of a team that keeps doing that. have done it for a long enough period of time now that, um, hey, this might not be a thing that can go on for three, four, five seasons, but um, it, it's far from fluky. I think another thing he deserves credit for is he hasn't tried to reinvent the wheel. And a key feature of this Napoli is how patient they are in, in deep positions. They really are just content to hold the ball to kind of provoke the opposition to come up the pitch. And I think of that, the best side I've seen doing that in recent years was Sarri's Napoli. I mean, when I watched them, I just couldn't believe how the extent to which they were happy to do that, to draw opponents up, you know, then suddenly just cut through. And I don't think there's that many players who are still around. The only one I think is Mario Rui, who played on Sarri and is still in the team. But there was a culture of doing that at the club and, and they've continued doing that really well. Cross his right footed, Ossiman had to reach for it. Did he ever? Did he ever reach for it? Is that the key moment to send Napoli into the last eight? Right on the stroke of half time. Ossiman does it again. Goal number 22. Okay, let's talk about Victor Ossiman because his goal scoring numbers are an absolute joke per FB ref. Uh, and this is someone who hasn't taken a single penalty this season either. Uh, 0.93 goals per 90 in Serie A, 0.20 assists per 90. So uh, goal contributions, if you like, uh, 1.13 per 90. Ahmed, what a player, what a season he's having. Talk me through his game and, and the sort of goals that he scores. Yeah, first thing I want to mention that the, there is never an African player who won uh, the Capo Canonieri or the Paolo Rossi Award when... It was renamed. It's always mainly Italians or Argentinians, like never an African player. And if Napoli or when Napoli win the league, he's probably going to win the award. So there are many stuff that I like about Osman, probably everything. But <laughs> in terms of off-ball movement, I think his runs in behind the defense are incredible. Normally, a player who has like a great athletic ability can do these runs, but it's also the timing of the runs and where he makes the runs. He always makes runs in the channels from the blind side of the defender where the defender doesn't see him. And I think the best example of this is the 5-1 game against Juve, but also the goals away to Sassolo and Roma. And there's a certain passing combination that they always do. So De Lorenzo plays the pass into Politano and then Politano, while that's happening uh, out of the screen, Osiman is making a run behind the defender. So once the ball goes to Politano, he plays a one-touch chip over the defense to uh, Osiman. And Osiman from there, the angle is very narrow, but he shoots from really narrow angles as the goals we saw against Sassolo and Roma. 
The other thing is his positioning inside the box. So he's always adjusting his positioning in relation to the ball and the defender. Always moving to be on the blind side of the defender so the defenders can see both him and the ball at the same time. To add to that, his aerial ability is incredible. So it's not only about the physical aspects in terms of leaping or jumping. Uh, the timing of attacking the cross is great. You can see that in the second goal against Juve in the 5-1 game. Uh, in the game against Udinese at home, that was the last game before the World Cup and also after the World Cup away to Sampdoria. So the timing of him attacking the cross is great. Yeah, Ahmed makes a good point about an, an African player never winning the Capocannonieri, which uh, brings me to one of my personal favourite stats, which is that the legendary George Ware never scored more than 13 goals hmm. in a Serie A season, never got within 10 goals of being the top goal scorer in Serie A, and won the Ballon d'Or in 1995 despite scoring just seven league goals that season. I know he did more than score goals. He's a good around player, but it's not a great scoring record for a you know world player of the year, is it? No, it, it, objectively it is not. Um, with this level of performance and this number of goals, Ahmed, comes the, the inevitable speculation. Uh, in particular, there is one very large English football club who may or may not be in the market for number nine this summer, Manchester United. Uh, do you think that he would suit their style of play under Ten Hag and, and could be the missing piece of the attacking puzzle? United are missing a couple of pieces, but yeah, I think it would suit <laughs> them. But the issue will probably be the price tag. I don't think De Laurentiis will, will sell Ozzyman, like for peanuts. But from United's perspective, Martial is always injured and the injuries that are reoccurring this season he can't play most of the games. Uh, Weghurst is on a short-term deal. We don't know if he's going to have like a long-term deal. And if he did, I can't see him being the main forward for uh, United. And there's also the aspect of Ossiman's off-ball movement. Like None of the United forwards now, even the players who play out wide, are actually doing that a lot. They, are mm. ma they mainly want the ball to feet. Maybe Rashford a bit is improving, but most of their forwards want the ball to feet. And actually, after the Reading game in the FA Cup, when they did like runs behind the defense, Ten Hag praised it a lot after the game. But also, he would fit United in terms of the pressing, uh, in terms of being an outlet if they were pressed. United have a problem in, in their midfield and their build-up, especially their build-up. So you see lots of big teams pressing United and then they go long, but they can't do anything. Osman could be a great outlet. Uh, and also his aerial ability in the box, like United could benefit from that. So whether it's uh, open play crosses, putting crosses inside the box or even set pieces like United have a huge problem in terms of attacking set pieces. It improved a bit this season and you can see how the aerial ability of Casemiro helped them. So I think Osman would be an addition to that. I think it'd be a really good, good signing. There's a good guarantee of goals as well. I wonder if he'd be the perfect sort of option. I can't help but feel like... There's just that clamour for a really, really good high-level passer, which is is probably one of the weaker parts of his game. It's still good, by the way, but just in terms of you're going to list Osman's strengths, I don't think passing is right up at the top. Um, I feel like they've got enough of a disruptive runner in, in Rashford. Um, you just wonder if they might end up sort of clogging similar sorts of spaces or wanting to do similar things at similar times, whether someone like Tony or a Kane that can be a bit more of a receive half-turn player. Um, but as I've said, it, it would still be good. And I think that's probably one of United's problems is that they can't really work out what number nine profile they want because even Ten Hag now is still using Rashford a bit as sort of a, a number nine and trying to work out really what, and I guess the balance can change game to game, but generally the long-term plan of, look, we need this player that's going to score goals, but also be a link player, you know, be an aerial target, um, trying to sort that out. And 
on the flip side of that, that's something that, that Napoli have really sort of sorted out to a really, really good degree. They've got that really good balanced um, dynamic forward line that, that works together. The playing uh, relationships are there. So maybe they can take the player, but they also probably need to take the ideas as well and how they operate and how they combine is, uh, is really, really good. Don't just take the player, take the game. Didn't really work. I want to talk about some of the summer additions that are contributing massively to this team. Uh, one in particular, the name on absolutely everybody's lips. Uh, tell me about Kim Min Jae, Liam. <laughs> I really like him. Um, I saw a fair bit of him when I was doing um, a lot of World Cup prep, and obviously he's, he's very much the, I guess the, the replacement for Kalidou Koulibaly. I actually had to Google earlier on when I was I was watching back the the second leg um, to check what foot his dominant foot was, which I think is generally quite a compliment for a player because yeah. um, believe he's right footed from what I checked. Um, often playing off the left, um, I guess a lot of people will compare him to Harry Maguire in that sort of role. Um, he's also probably got a similarish physical build. I argue he's sort of more athletic, but. Um, just the perfect balance of a modern defender. At times, you know, he will make clearances, he'll block shots, and um, he'll do that side of the game. But equally, there's times last night where, you know, he was making underlapping runs or dribbles forward and ending up with sort of shots in the opposition box and not doing it in a way that you often get where centre-backs can do that. And it's almost a bit of a running joke that a centre-back's managed to dribble their way through and, you know, nosebleed territory and it's all, all a bit wild. But he's a genuinely really good technical player and passes really well off both feet. He's helped by having a good dynamic sort of midfield triangle in front of him. But the reason why those rotations work so well and Osman works so well when he's dropping and running in behind is because he's got someone like him in particular to find him with forward, forward passes. Um, often teams will set up with a decent block against Napoli. Um, they'll track run as well, but he will play really well-timed sort of midfield splitting passes. He really ignites attacks. And I, I think it's a really well-balanced back line in that regard as well. And then the man who's probably got the best array of nicknames in European football, Shea Kavara, the most recent to add to Kavara Vaggio and Kavara Donna. Michael, when we spoke about him four months ago briefly, uh, you used the name Lionel Messi in terms of discussing the way that he looks, how his game looks. I was always a little concerned that it was going to be a month or two of exploding onto the scene and then maybe just moving back quietly into the shadows. Uh, has that or has that not been the case for the young Georgian whiz kid? No, he's been pretty consistent. Um, Kvarat Scalia. He's, uh, yeah, he's, he's, I think the game against Juventus, again, for me, that's just the, the dominant game of their season. And I'm really pleased that they played Juventus before the points deduction. So it felt kind of a bit more live. But no, he's been great. I mean, he's a brilliant individual. You know, I'm always a little bit skeptical to go on about recruitment because I think a lot of it is just, you know, how they fit in the team. I think, uh, you know, Kim's a fantastic player. But, you know, as Liam says, he's helped by the fact he's in a really good team. But, just this is a brilliant, brilliant individual. And you have to say that it's an incredible pickup. I mean, he came from a club with respect that I've never heard of before called Dynamo Batumi. Mm. And I understand that he was in Russia and he left Russia because of the, the war. So he went back to his homeland. But to find a player like that from Georgia, I mean, when was the last time that a player came from a completely obscure European league, jumps to a big league and suddenly is almost the most dominant player in Europe this season? It's absolutely extraordinary. And he's a brilliant footballer. He is, I think he is Messi-like in the fact he's, he can do everything. He can score goals. He's brilliant assisting. He's great in tight spaces. He's a selfless player. He's a hardworking player, which Messi was in his, you know, a comparable age. He is absolutely fantastic. Ironically, they've probably got similarish penalty records as well. He actually missed one um, in the first leg at Frankfurt. But I think having that individual brilliance we spoke about, um, sort of from the managerial perspective in the last couple of pods is, 
that's really essential in knockout football that you've got a really good system you've got adaptable tactics but at times games are going to one by small details like mistakes set pieces or moments where players come alive um, and and do good things and, and score critical goals and you can't always set up to allow that but at times you just need that part of the uh, the game in terms of the recruitment and the um, you know the embedding of that player to, to go your way he's kind of become the type of player that I thought Yano Ananidze would be that's a slightly niche reference but he was another really talented Georgian player who played in Russia about 10 12 years ago who again was compared a little bit to Messi mm. but uh yeah never got to this level that shows what you know <laughs> Michael they're going to win Serie A and we're going to love every second of, of watching this joyous team do so they're currently the fourth favorite for the Champions League as we move into the last eight made pretty light work of their round of 16 tie they won five out of five to start the group stage before losing their last group game against Liverpool having already come top of the the group but I'm asking whether you think this team could win the Champions League and so I have to ask whether there are some obvious weaknesses that could be exploited in the next six to eight weeks yeah it's funny with the Champions League I don't know what it is about the competition but I feel we all look to experience whether it's just Real Madrid keep on winning it and we think well you have to have you know been there and done it before but yeah, I think they are being a little bit underrated in terms of the Champions League. They obviously have the benefit of the fact that they're going to be able to rest players if they want. They've they've got Serie A wrapped up. That's that's a foregone conclusion now. Um, a lot of people, I guess, will be listening to this podcast after the draw has taken place for the quarterfinal. So our listeners might have a better impression than us of, uh, of how they'll fare. In terms of a weakness, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a weakness, but I would... Be interested to see how they play against a really dynamic quick side, like a Bayern Munich on firing on all cylinders with Mane, with Leroy Sané, with all those quick players, Coman. I wouldn't say it's a weakness, but I tend to think sometimes when Serie A sides have fallen short, you know, good-looking Serie A sides have fallen short in Europe, it's often just because they've really struggled to deal with just the dynamism that you find in, in maybe more European leagues than you find in Serie A. I'd be intrigued to see how they deal with the midfield box because they often play with a three. The box is generally even out of possession, the, the deepest one, sometimes in more of a 4-1-4-1 than a 4-5-1. Than a but they could quite well be overloaded there at times. Um, there was a good example from, from Frankfurt who almost got through them on a couple of occasions early on where you know the fullbacks are going tight to the midfielders rather than sort of defending in, in the wide areas. Um, so, you know, it, it's a, a high line that is taking a lot of risks and at this moment in time in the season it's consistently worked really really well um, Merritt is a goalkeeper um, he's someone I, I watched a few years ago when he was you know I think he was batting with, with David Ospina for sort of the, the number one spot and has, has now made that made that his own has become more of sort of a sweeper keeper they've got a, you know well balanced defence as much as a well balanced attack that they will get sort of eight players nine players back into the box clear crosses when they need to low block as well as um, sort of high press but I think just because they have so much wide personnel they play with you know they're inverted wingers but they play with two genuine wingers where you compare that to someone like Man City now who might line up in a similar sort of formation or at least in, in an attacking sense but will play sort of these more central number 10s so they could get overloaded there um, I'd imagine they have you know a plan to adapt to and change that but I think that's a real compliment that we're sort of having to look and stretch really hard to find any sort of weaknesses in this team. Away from Napoli, Ahmed, looking at the Champions League more generally, are there any particular play styles or approaches that you believe suit Champions League knockout football? Or, or is it just entirely dependent on your opponents and impossible to use a, a broad brushstroke? With Champions League, because it's, it's really low sample size, it's a game or two. And like a red card or... 
فول باك اون يالو كارد كوت سوي ذا جيم اواي اور ان انديفيدوال برفورمانس فروم سيرتن بلاير لايك وي سو كورتوا لاست سيزون ان ذا فاينل يا ريال مدريد وان ات بات وات وود هاف هابن ذا فاينل اف كورتوا ديدنت هاف ذات اميزنج جيم بيكوز اي ثوت ليفربول وير بيتر اون ذا داي سو With the Champions League, it's very low sample size. One game could change anything. Even if it's a two-leg tie, you can win it in the first game. So I'm a bit cautious in terms of like general approach, which is better. It, it depends on the tie and depends on the day, really. The way I'd look at it from with the coaching hat on in particular, it's these are games that you have to avoid losing in first before you can win them. I thought the perfect example of this for people that watched the, the Women's Euros last summer um, was the England team who quite often in games, particularly the Latin knockout rounds, um, I think even was it the Norway game at the Amex where they, they absolutely demolished them, um, didn't start as the better team. Uh, we're often on the back foot conceding chances early on. Um, again, as Ahmed says, sometimes you need those big performances and big players to come up. But effectively, whereas we're looking at league football about everything being between both boxes, you need to win both boxes more than anything sort of in between them. You're not playing for longevity. You're playing to get through the next round to survive and then you know go on and go further. And City have been a great example of that, of you know being able to smash teams in, in one leg completely and then suffer sort of um, later on around and go out because they just can't seem to stay alive. Or Guardiola said, we need to avoid conceding stupid goals um, sort of post-match because you know that is more important. I know there's no away goals rule now, but um, that's going to be the difference. You see, he mentioned the Amex. He just gets Brighton references whenever, whenever <laughs> needed. You know, Incredible. Well, he's got plenty of credit with us, so let's not worry about that too much. Um, <laughs> let's just finish by, by having a look at some of the other teams in the Champions League knockout stages. Uh, Manchester City and Bayern Munich are the two favourites for the competition. We're, we're obviously talking about this before the draw has been made. So um, the, the, the setup of the draw, the layout of the draw will affect this, of course. Uh, Real Madrid and, and Napoli, third and fourth favourites around similar projections, certainly with the bookmakers anyway. Uh, then Chelsea, uh, then Benfica, Inter and AC Milan. Liam, who, who do you think's some of the most interesting teams to, to look at here before the draw's made? I think Milan are quite interesting now because they've had a big tactical tweak Um going from sort of a 4-2-3-1 to, to more of a back three. They, it doesn't feel like a big compliment to they nullified Spurs completely, but I was really intrigued by sort of their, their man marking of the back three. I thought they were really good as well as Spurs being really, really bad. Um, I know that they're obviously, they've got through to this stage for, for the first time in sort of a, a long time and won't be expected to go too far through, but the teams having that adaptability, I think is really essential later on in rounds. Um, I thought Chelsea were really impressive in the second leg against Dortmund, particularly in sort of the, um, in the first half. Again, Potter tweaked back to, more of a, a Tuchel-esque sort of three box three um, with, with uh, Sterling more as the number nine and, and Habits in the 10. So I think people sort of uh, underestimate that. Obviously, Michael wrote sort of pre-work up about how you haven't got to be the best team. You haven't got to be a perfect team. You've got to be adaptable and functional. And we very much saw that with Argentina on an international sense. I know it's slightly different um, when you've got more time to, to coach things. But as I said, the, these are games to not lose. Um, if you can tweak and more nullify your opponent's strengths and then go to exploit their weaknesses rather than anything sort of relevant to you, I think is, is sort of the key. And I think it's hard to sort of switch out of that mindset from league football that we're so used to where it's, okay, we need a consistent process where we're doing the same things repeatable um, and long term those would be good things it's no we need to win this game now buying the second favorites we haven't spoken about loads on on the pod this season it's often difficult to analyze them um, with their league football often being very different to how it looks in the champions league michael do you think Bayern are solid sturdy good for second favorites behind man city yeah, probably. I still haven't completely worked them out. They're not doing as well in the Bundesliga as they usually do, but I thought they've made very light work of PSG across two legs. We're never really in danger of that. Yeah, I think they're a good side. I quite like Benfica as well. I think people maybe look at them as 
the weak ones in the in the quarterfinals because they're the only ones not from a, a major league. But I think they've been really good this year. They're obviously weakened by the loss of Enzo Fernandez and in central midfield, but their record is excellent in league in the Champions League. I know they were up against Club Bruges in the uh, in the second round, but yeah, I think you still have to give them good credit for how many goals they scored in that game. So yeah, I, I kind of agree with Liam in terms of Milan being interesting, but I think I'd rather draw Milan than I would Benfica. I just, I just thought Milan were quite flat in that game against Spurs. I thought it was two, two sides quite out of sorts, to be honest. So yeah, I, I would have Milan as the one to get rather than Benfica. It's all pretty academic, isn't it, Ahmed? Because Courtois, Modric, Kroos, Vinny, Benzema, Ancelotti, Quince for Real Madrid, no? I stopped analysing Real Madrid logically uh, a couple of years ago because the individual brilliance and the chemistry between the players, like you saw yesterday, uh, Cruz completely controlling the game. Like, it was really weird in the second leg against Liverpool because I felt like Real Madrid's midfield is Liverpool's midfield. They were the ones who were winning balls in midfield, winning second balls, counter-pressing, and just controlling the game. But yeah, the individual quality is, is just there for everyone to see. And it will be interesting... What will happen after Modric and Kroos and Benzema, everyone leaves? Like, how will Real Madrid cope? But the Champions League is their focus. There is a great piece uh, Dermot wrote last year, before actually before the City game, about how uh, Calderon and Jorge Valdano always talk about the Champions League being the main focus. And even if they are not, like, the best team, they have the mentality to win, even from behind. Like, we saw, it, like, City probably should have won on on the performance in the two legs, but just at the end, they scored two goals. So yeah, Real Madrid, unpredictable, and the individual quality matters in these games. Certainly does. Well, it's been great to talk to Ahmed, to Liam, to Michael uh, about Napoli, about Luciano Spalletti, uh, and about the Champions League as we approach the quarterfinal stage. The breadth and quality of these guys' work on the athletic site at the moment is so, so strong. Make sure that you're reading everything that they're writing as we get into crunch time. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics, the best place to go to sign up if you are not currently a subscriber of The Athletic. You'll pay £1.99 a month for the first 12 months of your subscription. Thanks very much for listening to this. Hope you enjoyed our two-parter on the state of football management over the last two weeks. If you haven't listened, then make sure you go back and enjoy that and other bits of our back catalogue. Thanks for joining us. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast feed and we'll see you again next week on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.